Blog Talk Radio. talking about oppressed people, one of the things you're talking about is that people are lacking 
the proper information so they can think critically to analyze their reality. So we hope to change the paradigm by giving you Africa on the moon. And like always, let's get started with our party by introducing you to our political analysts and panelists for the day. We start off with Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the moon. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to the fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Next, we Brother Anthony. We will now go to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa, and peace to all those who have been sound my voice. My name is Haki Kamathi Mishoki. Coming with African Awareness, and I'm all about institution building. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I find very interesting is that, you know, recently we talked about the stock market decline. And, of course, those of us who understand how the stock market works, we understand it's a Ponzi scheme. But nonetheless, it's important to understand that those people with positions of power would do anything to not only uh, maintain that power, but to enhance that power. So therefore, when we talk about the overall aspirations of the people in the country, and particularly when we talk about the aspirations of African people in society, we've got to understand that those aspirations constitute a fundamental conflict for those in positions who want to maintain and keep their power. So therefore, we have to have institutions or to understand that fundamental economic reality in terms of what we're up against. Because without an adequate understanding of how the system works, uh, particularly economically, then there's no way we can combat the, the situation we find ourselves confronted with. So institutions are extremely important. So I encourage people to get busy about building those institutions, creating those organizations that they deal toward the enlightenment of the masses of people. And Brother Africa, again, I want to thank you uh, for having me on the show. Thank you, Brother Haki. Father Brother Haki, we now bring in Brother Jabari. Welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you. This is Brother Jabari, Resident Research. We're looking forward to another insightful program. It's an honor and privilege to be here. Peace to the fellow panelists and listening audience. Brother Jabari, Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that mouth-say tongue is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again for allowing me to be on the show, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Moses. And Father and Brother Moses, we have Sister Hattie. Sister Hattie, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, Brother Africa. I am Hattie Bonds, and I'm a retired public school administrator and currently developing Women United, an organization, nonprofit, to support and encourage women in whatever endeavors they choose to take. So thank you for having the show. I'm excited about tonight's conversation. Thank you. Okay, we have a little addition to this particular segment on what's going on in our world community. We have two guests with us this today. We first would like to bring in our brother, Brother Opie. 
He has a very important and significant event that's coming up, I believe, on the 1st of December. And uh, it's significant because we have created another revolutionary. And I know he's going to train this youth to be one of the baddest revolutionary people I've ever had. So we'd like to introduce our <laughs> brother, brother, Mo, brother, brother Opie here, brother Opie, share with the world this great event. Africa has made another victory. The mic is yours, brother Opie. Um, thank you very much. Um, good evening. How's everyone? Uh, oh, okay, greeting, greeting. Yeah, greeting. Yeah, greetings to all. Um, tonight, I'm um, just making an announcement on um, sat- next Saturday evening, December first, at um, five thirty at Washington D.C. in Washington D.C. Um, at Saint the Saint Stephen's and Incarnation Church, located on fifteen twenty five Newton Street Northwest. And uh, what since gentrification has taken place is called the Columbia Heights section in Northwest Washington. They will be um, the Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company will be doing a play, and the name of the play is entitled Araminta and Samora: Treating the Sick and Liberating the Oppressed. And the play chronicles the life, service, and contributions of Araminta Ross, commonly and more popularly known as Harriet Tubman, and Samora Marshall, the um, first president of the Republic of Mozambique and the leader of Free Limo, the Revolutionary Front for the Liberation of Mozambique that liberated um, Mozambique from Portuguese colonialism. For listeners who don't know, they have a lot in common. Both of them were nurses. Before Samora Marshall joined the guerrilla struggle to liberate Mozambique from Portuguese colonialism, he was a nurse. And his first um, political activity was a demonstration um, dealing with the disparity in pay between Portuguese nurses and Mozambican nurses. And um, his middle name was Moises, which is um, Moses in English. So both of them were considered Moses, both of them were liberators, and both of them were nurses. So that's the correlation. So we hope moving into the future, when we teach our children about Harriet Tubman, Araminta Ross, it will not be done in isolation from talking about the life and service of Samora Marshall. Um, that's the focus of the play. And um, the play is a celebration of my two-month-old son, Mosiah um, Jean-Pierre Guna, who is named Mosiah in honor of the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey. So the play is put on by Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company, which was created in 2011, and it is a um, the ve- we use theater as a vehicle to give our children political education and political education that they can put in proper historical context, so they can understand the correlation between articulating ideas and executing ideas, that harmonious balance between theory and practice. As we remember, Osajek or Dr. Kwame Nkrumah thought taught us that practice without thought is blind and thought without action is empty. So that's the objective. And um, Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company functions in the tradition of the Youth Pioneer Institute that Osajek or Kwame Nkrumah and the Convention People's Party created, Pioneers of the Revolution, which that great son of Africa, Thomas Sankara, had going on in Burkina Faso. We seek to be a children's instrument using culture, using art to make political education more embraceable and create the conditions for the um, revolution that we're all fighting to bring about. So once again, next Saturday, 
It will be a children's play. It will be our 25th production in seven years. Some of our previous plays were African Liberation Day for our children, Cuba's Greatest Army, a tribute to, for, to the Cuban doctors, Sally Mugabe Lives Forever, Same Neighborhood, Different Perspectives, a conversation between General Colin Powell and Kwame Ture, just to name a few. So this is our 17th play, but our 25th production, and that will be taking place next Saturday at the St. Stephen's and Incarnation Church in um, D.C. at 5.30 p.m., doors opening. And so um, we will be welcoming my son, who is now 11 weeks old, going on 12 weeks old. So thank you, Brother Lee, for the opportunity to talk a little bit about what we're doing. No, we'd like to thank you for the contribution that you have made to humanity by giving that piece of people another revolutionary to help fight the struggle. But Brother Opie, oh, before you go yeah. quickly, for those who can uh-huh. like maybe come to your play and would like to support your work, how can we support you and would like to make a donation to your cause? Oh, they um they can go we have a PayPal, Mass Emphasis two thousand twelve at gmail dot com. Mass Emphasis two thousand twelve at gmail dot com. But um if they can come, it's ten dollars per person, fifteen dollars per family, which means if you bring twenty of your relatives, you all get in for fifteen dollars. Youth, student and community organizations get in on a ten dollar discount. So the objective is not necessarily that, but we just want to continue to bring attention to what we're doing with the Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company. And once again, it's this is a brand-new play, um, Araminta and Samora, and it's our first performance since African Liberation Day weekend. We did two plays. One was called The Yinga Yinga and the Bush, which was about the life of Josiah Mangama Tongogara, who led the armed struggle against British colonialism in Zimbabwe from 1966 to 1979. And the other play was called Our Heroes Still Guide Us, and it was about the Heroes Acre, where many of the na- where all the national heroes in Zimbabwe are buried, which serves as a cultural instrument to ignite the revolutionary spirit of the people. And before I left, um, ended tonight, I just wanted to use the opportunity that I have to congratulate the mighty people of Eritrea, the government of our comrade Isaias Afwerki, and the Eritrean People's Liberation Front for winning a significant victory in diplomatic warfare where the United Nations was forced to lift sanctions on Eritrea that were instigated by U.K. and U.S. imperialism. So we're a week removed from that victory, and it's the most significant victory that the Eritreans have enjoyed since they gained their independence 27 years ago. So we're honored and humbled to exist in a physical space where we had the privilege of witnessing that victory. So once again, Mass Emphasis, Children's History and Theater Company, we're doing our thing, our play, Araminta and Samora, treating the sick, liberating the oppressed, to show the Pan-African parallel between the life of Harriet Tubman and Samora Marshall. Thank you so much, Lee. Thank you, panelists. And for those of you who can physically make it who are listening, we'll love to see you there. And quickly, Opie, you do put your, uh, your production, your all willing to go on, the, go on the road to schools and universities and share your... You, We've primarily done stuff in the D.C. area, but um, there's been um, – we've definitely made some links. Um, we're supposed to be um, having a memorandum of understanding with the Children's Theater Ensemble in the, in the mighty Republic of Venezuela under the revolutionary leadership of our comrade Nicolas Maduro. 
And we are supposed to be making history by signing a children to children's um, memorandum of understanding with the infamous and incomparable La Colmenita, which is the National Children's Theater Ensemble and the Revolutionary Republic of Socialist Republic of Cuba. So that's supposed to be taking place in any particular point. And um, there's interest in us doing branches in Virginia, interest in us doing branches in Pittsburgh, interest in us doing branches in Guyana um, and um, Seattle. So different people have talked about it. But for right now, we've just um, been working and maintaining a presence in D.C. because we understand Washington's political, military, economic, and cultural significance on the global scale being the face of imperialism. So it's very strategic for us to have this going on there and being able to maintain it in the spirit of self-determination. We know grant money. We are more concerned with being historically responsible than grant eligible. So that's where the way it is, Brother Lee. We thank you, Brother Opie, and to our audience, if you can support the Brother work, they do excellent work, please do so. And we'd like to thank you for coming forward and sharing this information with our audience tonight. Brother. And thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. All right, then. All right, forward. Well, audience, right now, you are listening to Africa on the Move. And we're going straight to Africa in about two minutes. We're going to take the station break. And when we come back, we have with us our beloved sister Celine from Camp Cameroon. She can talk about what's happening in Cameroon. You know, there are so many things going on uh, back home that many times the West will not talk about it. So we have live from Africa our sister Celine. She'll be with us in two minutes. We're going to pause with the call, and we'll be right back. This is Africa on the move.
like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. Yes, we were stolen from Africa and brought to America, fighting for our arrival, and we are still fighting for our survival. You can take the Africans out of Africa, but you can't take Africa out of Africans. And tonight on the segment, what's going on in your world community, we are happy to have our sister from Cameroon, our beloved sister. We have with our sister Celine. Sister Celine, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Sister Celine, can you hear us? I do. Yes, I'm hearing you. Oh, Oh, Rabali, good evening. How are you? Can I say good evening or good morning? Yes, you can say good evening, good morning. You can say whatever you want to say. We're happy to be able to connect <laughs> with our sister back home from Cameroon. Sister Celine. Because here we, are, our, in, we are in the morning. Okay, Sister Celine, um, to, our, to our international audience, please just introduce yourself um, to our audience. Tell us a little something about who you are. Okay, my name is uh, Naya Lekunze Celine. I am calling from Cameroon. I am the leader of uh, many women organizations struggling to elevate the women from poverty, struggling to network the women together so that we can see how we can bring up our children in a better way, struggling for all the activities that are going on in Africa Concerning the women, our organization is mainly based on the women activities, on how we can elevate women from poverty in Africa. I am the coordinator of the Southwest Women Association, SWABNET. SWABNET is an association which is combined with youth and women in agriculture and business. We are trying how we can send our products to other countries so that we can make some money for the women, how to train women also, and how they can do uh, marketing, they can do processing, they can also do other activities. Uh, We are an association that we are also struggling for the education of the girl child you know, in Africa in the past, the female children were people not to go to have education. The education was mainly for the boys. So for years, we have been struggling for the education of the girl child. For example, we started from a CIG, and then we went up to creative, and then from our cooperative, we now united with the Southwest women Agri-Business Association. So thank you. How are you people doing over there? Uh, we do it. We're struggling, Sister Singh, like all Africans around the world. We're struggling against capitalism. But what we want you to do right now, because there's some very important things that are going on in Cameroon that our people need to know about. You know, one of the things we try to do is unite our people. We for unity are Africans. And we understand there are some issues, issues and a war taking place in Cameroon. Can you tell us what is the current reality of what's happening in Cameroon? Well, in Cameroon, we have a crisis. 
because some of the Cameroonians uh, want secession. They want to divide the country, so that's why we have crisis and there's war in Cameroon. You said there's a war in Cameroon when you have a crisis. Who are the forces? Who are the forces in contention with each other? Oh, we have the we have the secessionists who are fighting with the government. And when you say secession, we recognize the the history of Cameroon. You had your French-speaking Africans, and then you have a European section. What section want to separate and create their own uh, separate country now? No, there's no other. There's no section which is for the European. All were divided. The Cameroon was divided into two. Some were speaking French, and the others were speaking English. Right. So the English people want to separate from the French people. For, for what, what, on what basis is the separation based upon? What's the base upon the separation, from your understanding? Oh, I will not be able to tell you because I don't know. I don't really know about it well. And, you know, it's good to say something that you really know well. I just only discovered that people were fighting. They started that uh, teacher, uh, uh, lawyers wanted their rights. And then after the rights of the lawyers, I just saw that people were fighting. I don't know what happened, but they were not the lawyers fighting. And how has this fight impact upon you and your organization? Oh, the fight has so impacted us so much because I'm not in my house now for eight months. Left my house because it was not easy to remain there as a leader. You know, in leadership, when you are a leader, you are always focused. You are always the focus of everybody. So I have to run away from my house, leaving my children in the house now for eight months. So we are just praying that God should bring peace because we are brothers, we are in-laws, we are friends, we are so united that we shouldn't be fighting because God does not does not like people to fight and kill people for no just cause. Okay, so then we have some other brothers and sisters on the phone. We may have some questions or maybe like to speak to you for a few minutes. We can start out with our sister. Uh, Sister Hattie. Sister Hattie, anything you'd like to ask or share or express to our Sister Celine for Cameroon? Are you there, Sister Hattie? Okay, here. I was having a little technical difficulty. I couldn't get off mute. Can you hear me okay now? Yes, we can. Right. Well, sister, uh, welcome to the conversation, and my hope is that um, you will take a look at Women United, and uh, we're we're on the website at www.womenunited. That's W-O-M-E-N United U-N-I-T-E-D seven 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 dot org. And take a look at our website and. Um, Connect with us because one of the things that you said there that we are very interested in is helping with some of the young ladies there who are strong academic students who would like to come here 
to study from any continent in any country in the continent, and then after that, go back home and help their extra, you know, countries do whatever it is that needs to be done. Um, if that is something you are interested in, and I'm I'm only interested in girls. I went to Ghana, couldn't find any girls there, but I found one young man, and he's here now, uh, starting at the community college, and that's okay because when the young men are okay, the young ladies are okay, so whoever I start with, I start with, but I really wanted to start with the young ladies, however, perhaps something like that. Um, So we're we're open to that. We're developing our organization. And we also have um, um, our our wonderful uh, sister, Filet, out in Philadelphia, who's done some amazing work and did the Million Woman March, 1997, so 20 years ago. She's also very interested in uh, aspects of Africa and We'll be doing some things as well, and you could look up the Million Woman March, um, 20 year anniversary, and uh, look at that. And uh, the number that you can reach Women United at, which is mine, is 202 area code 9073514. So. Love to talk with you. We're open to ideas, anything we could do to help any woman across the world. We are willing to get it done. So I know there's a lot of things going on there all over the continent, and I am so happy I haven't met anyone from Cameroon in a number of years now. So thank you, (laughs) and that's that's what we're doing. There's a there's a um, quite substantial Cameroon uh, community pocket in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I spent the last 26 years of my life working there in public schools. So I'm so happy, sister, to hear you this night. I'm just so grateful to hear you. Oh, the thing is, um, Mr. Lee, can give you my email address so that you can send the information to me through uh, email. So that okay. I can also get back to you because it's not easy for you to give me to the, through the phone now. It's the night, okay. and I'm not even with a pen to write. So, okay, uh, if Do you, you can have, send to uh, me through my email address, I will be very great. I will be very very grateful. I'm so grateful to have you all for a long time. I've not been to the U.S. and then I'm just so connected now. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. I have so many of them. I have a couple of them. Um, there is one girl who also wanted to do nursing. She completed from high school, and there's no money for us to foster her education. She is there in the house. We have uh, another girl who is doing technical education. She, too, an orphan also is there in the house. She cannot go ahead. I have a boy who is in a technical teacher's uh, uh, college because of this struggle he cannot foster his education he is there and there's no money for him to continue so i have even three uh, little uh, children in the house primary school and secondary school children in my house we are bringing up 
But because of this struggle for three years now, they are not going to school. So it's not easy with us here, sister. It is not easy. Oh, I Being a mother and a leader, you don't just speak anyhow. You don't say anything anyhow because you can implicate yourself for no just cause. So the struggle is there. I am in the middle. I'm a mother. With all the say you are a twin. When you are a twin mother, you cannot hurt one one other child and leave the other because all of them are your children. As a child of God, we don't support rioting. We are peacemakers. We look for ways of making peace. That if peace reigns and everybody is living a happy life, everybody's fine, it will be good for all of us. Like the women back back home, we have gone a long way with them, struggling with them. Mr. Lee knows when we met in America in 2001 and 2002, he knows what I have been passing through, struggling with those women, bringing them up bit by bit until this time that this crisis started. If you can hear that women started from a common initiative group and they have reached a cooperative, it means a lot. It means that uh, one has really struggled with them. You know the level of poverty that is in Africa, especially in the rural area, that sometimes women are living below a poverty line of below a dollar a month. They wow. can even afford to have a one dollar a month. So those women who are not working, there's nothing they are doing. We don't have good roads. You have food in the farm, you don't have a place to sell. They are all mostly farmers, and that's why we are struggling that if they can have things to process their products, it will be easy to transport them, to sell them, because when you transport things, they become lighter, and you can carry a bigger quantity somewhere for a market. We are looking for good markets. We have good products. Thank God that you will send me your email address. And then I look at the website, and then we see what we can network to work together and see how we can help our women in Cameroon, not yes. only in my locality, but in the whole country. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So how is everybody? Right. Okay. Celine, so uh, next we'll introduce you to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, the mic is yours. Hey, thanks. Um, Revolutionary greetings, Sister Celine. My name is Anthony. I'm an organizer for the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC, which was founded by Osajifo Kwame Nkrumah in 1967. Um, I'm um, curious as to, um, one, I commend you and your organization for the work you're doing with the sisters. And uh, I have a general question about how many ethnic groups are in Cameroon. And is there a lot, as historically, there been, been, has there been a lot of tension between uh, those who speak English and those who speak French? Or is that being uh, fueled by forces outside of Cameroon? Oh, I cannot tell you the number of ethnic groups in Cameroon. There are so many. 
Cameroon has a lot of ethnic groups. They, they, have, they speak about 250 different languages, I mean dialects. So I don't okay. know the number of ethnic groups that we have. There are many. Mm-hmm. We don't have only two ethnic groups. We have so many ethnic groups who speak different, different, different languages. Dialect. Right. Let's call it a language or a dialect. Oh, okay. Even, uh, even now, there are so many. Pardon? Is there a lot of tension between the English speaking Cameroonians and the French speaking? Is there much of a conflict or is some of that being fueled uh, by outside forces? No, the conflict is just between the country. There are no outside forces there. It's just something in the country. We don't have outside forces. It's an internal problem. Okay. All right. Thanks, mm-hmm. sister. Hey, brother Haki. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yourself to sister Thank you. Celine. Sister Celine, quick question for you. What is the men's men's response to your organization? Uh, The name of a sponsor? I'm not getting you. What what, what does the men, how do the the men feel about your organization since you're trying to empower women? Do the men support your organization? Oh, hello. Hello. Yes. Okay. Oh my God. My organization. We don't have any means to sponsor the organization. I don't have the means. We are just struggling on our, on our own. We have not yet had somebody to sponsor us. Okay. So so the so the so the people in the community. Uh, is there a great deal of support for the empowerment of women? Oh, you th- do you think that the, women, the the people in the community, they have time for the women? They don't have time for the women. The women struggle on their own. So the women go, they, they clear their farms, they plant their products, they take to the market. If there's no market, they struggle. They are just struggling on their own. Uh, okay, thank you. All right, Brother Jabari, your question or comment? I want to just commend the sisters for being a part of the program. Thank you for your contributions, and I wish you the best. Peace. Okay, Brother Moses? Yes, um, I'm trying to understand um, what... Who, what the uh, basic issues in the in the uh, the internal struggle within Cameroon? What what are the, what are, you know what they're fighting over? Brother Moses and this audience, I think we just lost her. Um, I know it's like one o'clock in the morning time, and she's under very difficult conditions. But we just mm-hmm. lost her. But we'll try to bring her back on another day, but the point is there are issues that's going on, internal battles going on inside of Cameroon 
the sisters are seeking uh, help, but more importantly, um, those contradictions that you're hearing inside the com- Cameroon, there are contradictions that exist throughout the continent. This is why African people, Africa, must unite as one. So, if you'd like to have more information, if you'd like to support the sister or what have you, please contact this radio station, Africa on the Move, by emailing us at africaonthemove2 at gmail.com, and we will um, connect you or give you the information where you can contact the sister, or, you know, if you want to call her, we'll give you a number where you can reach her. So, again, this program today is dedicated to the whole idea of what's happening in Africa. So right now, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what's going on in the world community, and then we can come back and continue the discussion on what is happening to Africa. But you will just listen to our sister Celine from Cameroon and brother Opie, based in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. We're going to pause for this call. This is Africa on the Move. Fight, 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 fight,
like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. Not only do we have to fight against apartheid land conditions, but we got to fight against all conditions that seek to exploit and oppress all of humanity. We are back on Africa on the Move, and we have our sister Celine back. I thank Brother brother Moses. You had a question for Sister Celine. Go ahead, Brother Moses. Yes, I was wondering, you know, if they're fighting in Cameroon, and do you know what, why they're fighting, what the issues are? Celine, the question is for you. Repeat your question again. What, what what are they arguing about in Cameroon? What is the what is the issues in Cameroon? What are they struggling over? I I think I have explained it to you people. I I told you that the the, the struggle was the lawyer said they were not being well paid, and and that they were not uh, they, they were not. The English law and the French law had a problem. They were not agreeing. That's what brought the problem. That's where it started. So I don't know what was the cause of the war that it became that they started fighting. So what we heard was that lawyers are arguing that they are not giving their own place in the law, in the English law. So then teachers also said uh, they were not uh, paying them well. So I don't know. You know, I'm in the rural area. I don't stay in the town. So we did not really understand what happened. But we only heard that war was coming. We only saw accidents. Heard that people were fighting. And then some of us who are leaders had to flee from the villages to towns where we can hide. So I don't know. I don't know my brother. I don't know how I can explain it to you. There are those who are inside the matter that can tell you better what is happening. You know, when we met like that, my my airtime got finished. So that's why I went off. So I had to look for airtime again for my phone. It may be our other brother is annoyed that I did not finish his questions. Is that I went, my phone went off. And I had to look for air time to to put in my phone so that I can connect back. Hey, Celine, while we have you uh, on this program today, and we have an international audience, for people who want to support you and help you, what are some of the things they can do that you recommend they can do to help you and um, your organization at this point in time? What are some of the things you suggest that we could do? Okay, uh, the needs of the women are that we, we need uh, we need farm to market road. Can you people help us to dig us a good road so that we can carry our products out of the place? We need uh, machines that is processing units. Processing units is, that means, a place that they can build all type of machines that the women can do processing, maybe to make ton cassava, into gary, uh, flour, and so many things. Those are the things that we need. We need stores, processing, uh, uh, preservation stores. And we need to be taught. The women need training on how they can do packaging. You know, you cannot send things out of the country or you carry them far to another town 
without knowing how to package them well. We need even uh, four-wheel drive vehicles that can carry our products to the market since we don't have good roads. So I think those are our needs. We need money to send our children to school to continue the education of our children who are in the house without money to go to school. Like sister was saying, I'm very grateful that I will send her the names of those other girls who are in the house that maybe if they can, she can take them over to send to school. We'll be very grateful because they are orphans without fathers, without mothers that can help them. So we have been struggling it to see how we can send them to school. At least we also believe that when you educate a woman, you educate a, a, a nation. But when you educate a man, you educate an individual. With us in Africa, in Cameroon, there are the women, mostly the women in the rural areas are the people who are sponsoring their children in school. So when your husband dies and then you don't have any other property, it's difficult to send the children to school. So I think I told you our need. That's what we need. That's our need. I myself, I'm not even well. I'm sick because of the bad roads that I climb every day on motorcycles, up and down for the women activities. I develop problem with my back. I think I, lost, I went to the hospital and they said I lost cartilage for my back. So I had some back pain. I've been struggling in the hospital for training, for treatment. And because of the driving on motorcycles, air gave me sinuses also. Which I'm struggling to treat myself, but I don't even have money for the treatment. It's only God that has been taking care. So those are our needs. I don't know okay, the sir. one that God can bless you people to help us. We will be very grateful. Without the means, well, would you? Uh, they have uh, the um, electricity, or do they have to be powered by? battery or something. Is there electricity yeah. reliable there? Yeah, we don't we don't have electricity but we use solar. Yes. We use solar as electricity. We don't have electricity or we use generators. Some people use generators. Some people yes. use solar system. Yeah, in my house I'm using but solar, not the generator. I'm really living with the with with real rural women, but I struggle and walk right to the town. You no, know, because God has made me a leader. I'm always gathering people. So where I live and go to work with the women of Southwest is very far, but I still do it since the women saw me as somebody who has the capability of leading them and gave me the opportunity to lead them. I had to accept it so. It's just work. All right, Celine, so what we're going to do is for those who hear this program, it's just working with you and helping you. You can ask them to email me or email Africa on the Move by emailing Africa on the Move 2 at Gmail. And we will be the link between the support base that want to work with you and you. And closing, what I can ask my panelists to do right now 
is to just say a few encouraging words to our sister that she was having fun to say. Uh, stop you, Brother Anthony. Any final, final encouraging words you'd like to say to Celine? Yes. Uh, please continue to work with your organization. I wish you much success because um, our sisters need to be educated and organized in order to bring about the liberation of Africa from its enemies. Thanks. Brother Haki, no, any encouraging words? Any encouraging words to our sister Celine? Yeah, I too would encourage the sister to uh, continue doing what she's doing. And the fact that she realizes that the educated woman is an educated nation is very, very good. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly uh, that's very, very true. And we encourage her to continue to do the good work, and God bless her. Oh, thank you, people, very much. Thank you. Shabari, any final encouraging words you'd like to say to our sister, Celine? I would like to say that um, it's important that she continues um, the work of her organization. May she have much success with that endeavor, and her work is not in vain. Brother Moses. Thank you very much. Brother Moses, any final encouraging words you'd like to say to our sister Celine? Yes, she will keep the faith. And that, you know, she will continue to do the work that she's doing and know that today is struggle, but tomorrow is victory. And uh, con- continue on. Thank you. Sister Hattie, any encouraging uh, words? Thank, thank, you. thank you, people, very much. I, I'm just pleading you people to pray for Cameroon, that peace should come down in Cameroon. We are brothers and sisters, and we are in-laws. We are friends. So let God help us and bring peace, that our country should live in peace and stop fighting. Well, I just wanted to say, Sister Celine, that uh, we're very proud of you to do the work that you do. We all have our niche, and we have to find it. And um, I just uh, will be praying for God's healing of your back situation, and I really do look forward to keeping in touch with you to see if there are some uh, things that we can do to help. Um, so carry on and be strong, and may God bless you and keep you strong and healthy. Thank you. Oh, ma'am. ma'am, I'm so happy to come in touch with you. I pray also that God will continue to keep you people. You continue putting us in your prayers that God should bring peace. God should bring peace in our country. It's not good to be fighting. Because when we fight in Africa, everybody is suffering. The children suffer for three years. Children are not going to school. So many things are happening. We are, lo- we are losing houses. We are losing so many property. People are dying. Yeah, the army is dying are our children. Uh, mm. The sensation is dying are our children. They are not people from other countries. They are from the same place. So uh, my desire is that the war should stop. It should stop. We should pray. Help us to pray that it should stop. There are not people from other countries that have come to fight us, but we are fighting inside, which is not good. So please 
My prayer is that everybody should help us in praying for Cameroon, that there should be peace in our country. We'll keep in touch. Let God help us to keep in touch together. Thank you, people, for all the promises. I believe that God will see us through. Mm-hmm. We'll work together. Yes, my brother. It was great to connect with you. We want you to let you know you are not by yourself. Uh, we'll do what we can. But the most important thing is to remember that as long as we continue to struggle and to organize our people, victory is certain. So we'd like to thank you. We will stay in touch with you, and we will play this song in honor of the people in Cameroon and African people around the world to remember this. This is the song we want everybody to remember and never forget. And when we come back, we'll continue discussion on what's going on in our world and the community. We thank you, Sister Celine. Oh, thank you, people, very much, Brother Lee. I'm so proud of you. So don't you will 
matter where you come from, as long as you're a black man or woman, you're African. We are all one family. We are one history, and we are one destination. <coughs> Excuse me. Which is for us is Pan-Africanism. Calling for all Africans to come together and help organize and feed Mother Africa and help uh, suffering scattering children from all around the world. We recently were talking to our sister Celine from Cameroon on the segment of what's going on in our world community. And we're going to continue the discussion right now before we get to that thing, what is happening in Africa. We'll start with you, Brother Anthony. What's going on in your world community? Okay, uh, I have a couple of things. One, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the son of one of the uh, leading activists in the Ferguson Rebellion was uh, was lynched uh, last week. Uh, the police are saying it's a suicide, uh, but the mother uh, 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 thinks that he that he was actually murdered uh, because, according to her, he was not a, su- uh, a suicidal person. And it seems as if uh, you know the Africans in the Ferguson area are bearing the brunt. Of uh, you know the uh, of the cost of that rebellion that took place against uh, police brutality a few years ago, and it seems like there are forces that are targeting the youth that play leading roles in that you know in that struggle, and uh, so it uh, bears watching. And points to the need that we need to intensify a level of organization so that we're able to protect ourselves and our youth. Also, today marks the second uh, anniversary of Fidel Castro's uh, transition. And, uh, you know, it's been uh, two years and... uh, the Cubans are persevering, and uh, they're trying to do in 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 the face of um, you know imperialist forces. They're trying to hold on and continue to develop their revolution. Excellent, excellent, brother Anthony. Brother Haki, what's going on in your world in the community? You you know one of the things, brother Africa. You know. When we talk about, you know, the situation being perilous, uh, specifically, you know, for working class and you know, African people in society. And one of the things when we talk about being this this this, this question of being, you know, uh, being in a perilous situation, uh, one of the things that was prevailing mindset would say is that if things are weak, then they should be destroyed. There's a kind of perverse social Darwinism at play here in the minds of a lot of people. And so anything they perceive as weak, they don't have a problem in terms of eliminating or liquidating. So clearly, um, you know, uh, that is problematic, uh, you know, for people who are perceived as weak in America. Now, one of the things that recently uh, there's a center called the George Rottenberg Center in Canton, Massachusetts, and they house people who are primarily uh, autistic. Now, of course, if you don't know about autism, then you know that people are very repetitive in terms of their behavior. They're very, very compulsive. Well, it seems to me the situation is such a situation that when you have people who engage in repetitive behavior or who are compulsive, then you got to have adequate staff in terms of supervising them. But this this school took a different route. It imposed electrical shock. Now, of course, we understand under UN uh, con- convention against um, 
torture. Then we know that it's illegal internationally and nationally to actually use electrical shock at this point in history. But nonetheless, this center uses shock on these most defenseless human beings. So it got me to thinking in terms of in terms of this whole paradox. In terms of normally, you know, when you think about people who are weak or people who are most vulnerable, you the, the natural instinct or natural inclination is to want to help them. Where unfortunately in the society you got a lot of people who do the exact opposite. When you see people who are weak and vulnerable, they won't attack and kill them. So that is a strange paradox, nonetheless, exists in this country. And I think it's one that we have to begin to address. And I think when we try to get at the meat of what's really the problem in terms of society, we've got to begin to understand that you know, if you have no compassion for the weakest members of society, then how in the world could you even begin to understand justice in its, in its, in its, in its truest form? You simply can't. So this is the problem that we're confronted with in society. And so I think when we talk about it being a perilous situation, that's precisely what it, what it means. And we have to really start, you know, looking at, you know, our value system. And to the extent that our value system reflects the value system of the dominant class, of the ruling class in society, I think we, we really should have to question that. Because one of the things is that, you know, whereas, you know, they victimize the most vulnerable at this point, but at some point it's going to be others who are maybe not as vulnerable, but nonetheless perceived as vulnerable, which means that, open, which means that they become uh, potential um, victims uh, in terms of uh, the wrath of those in positions of power who prey only weak. So I think we've got to really uh, understand, you know, that this is a very perilous situation we're confronting ourselves in, and nothing short of understanding clearly what the situation is and confronting it and strategizing is going to uh, – it's going to, it's going to uh, it's going to be our only defining grace in terms of being able to overcome or surviving, you know, this, this, this mass insanity. You know, panelists, uh, this issue of, of this paradigm that Hakeem just mentioned about this concept of philosophy of you, you pray upon the weekend, just, you know, deny them. How much different is that paradigm in terms of trying to rationalize why they do what they do? How much different is that from the whole philosophy of this concept, they say power would takes what it won't. And constantly hearing people talk about power takes what it won't. What does that really mean? How how does that apply to the to our daily lives as we continue to um, exist in this in this world? I think one implication of that is that people that uh, that are perceived to be powerful want more power. And it's the nature of capitalism, uh, you know, to uh, seize more power. There's never enough. And that's one of, that's one of contra- uh, capitalism's contradictions, is that it, that, that it depends on its survival. Uh, people's level of consumption rising forever. Of course it doesn't, and uh, it is limited. And uh, so, uh, so, so, so capitalism to overcome this seeks areas of the world to expand. Right now, there are no areas of the, of the world left to expand to, so that means that they, they that they're going to survive by capturing markets that belong to other capitalists or that out or that are outside the control of capitalism. 
which is why you, uh, you see such a mass scramble going on for Africa today. Cause, uh, because the resources of the world are limited, and Africa has most of the resources needed for imperialism to, uh, to maintain its existence. Okay. Brother Jabari, what's going on in your world in the community? Um, recently, I read an article, and the focus of the article was on a particular um, supercomputer that is the world's fastest brain-making machine. And if anybody wants to read the article, it comes from scientificamerican.com. And what I draw from this article is that we have to be mindful of the kind of technology that we develop because at the end of the day, the technology is only as smart as those developing it because as certain science fiction media has shown us, if we're not careful, you can create technology that can adapt itself even when you're not using it to the point where it outthinks its creator. And in particular, this made me think of the Terminator movie in terms of when you look at um, what Skynet became. It got to a point where Skynet could mass produce those um, battle machines known as Terminator by itself and didn't even need human programmers no more because the end game was Skynet wanted to wipe out humanity. So we got to be careful that we don't create some type of mechanism like that because all that machine needs is the slightest instance where it can um, constantly think for itself at a rapid rate to the point where the creator won't be necessary. Wow, that's interesting. Very interesting. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community? Well, it's been a slow... Um, but there's a lot in the news that I won't go through. But uh, I don't know if it's open to the public or not, but tomorrow night at 7 p.m., Monday the 26th, there's going to be a a celebration of the the life and and legacy of Fidel Castro at the Cuban Embassy in D.C. And uh, other than that, I'm not sure what else is going on. Thank you. Okay, that would be something definitely in the area we suggest for our brothers and sisters going to attend, because Brother Fidel was a was truly a a servant to humanity and the people, and mm. his ideals and work should never be forgotten. Sister Hattie, what's going on in your world in the community? Well, we are continuing our. Um, Black Women Wisdom 90 and Up, and getting more and more momentum with that and looking at visiting uh, some more women that are seniors, our elders, and um, that's what we're doing, as well as our um, developing the student exchange program. And I, I just think it's just Really, really critical at this point in time that we do what we need to do to develop some relationships with the young people there in uh, on the continent. Who knows which one will be the one that will be the one that will lead Africa 
to some unity or some semblance of unity to organize it. You know, who knows who will be the next Kwame Nkrumah? Who knows, you know, who will be the next Winnie Mandela? Who knows who will be the next or someone who's not even been here before but have that same spirit of freedom and justice for Africa? And, of course, to kick everybody out who shouldn't be there. So true, so it's true. So, Palace, let's start on that segment, what's happening in Africa. But even when you talk about primary struggles, there's an issue that's been taking place for a while now that I think is having an impact on all of humanity, and I still don't believe very little attention has been given to it. And before we talk about Africa, we're going we're gonna to talk about just the whole aspects of the existence of the, of, of the globe, the existence of all mankind. And what I'm talking about is this whole issue of dealing with climate warm, warming and the burden is put on people are living during this time period to become more conscious of its impact that it, that it is having and can have and will have. If the world continued to continue to warm up, there was a real interesting article written in the Atlanta magazine. Um, this title: "A Gray Climate Warning Blurred Buried on Black Friday." This article was published on the 23rd of November 2018. Now it really talks about this whole impact of global warming and I think how people still not paying much attention to it. I mean, some people don't believe another increase of one degree of warming can even have a bigger impact than what you're seeing going on in California. So, Brother Hackey, you read this article on this whole question of um, the climate warming at this point in time and how it's affecting all aspects of our lives, why should that be a concern, Brother Hackey? Yeah, well, I, I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, you know, when you say that there are people who actually don't believe in global warming, in fact, uh, the orange commander-in-chief is one of those individuals who don't believe in global warming. But one of the things, you know, that the article brings out, it talks about the, the rising sea levels, and they talk about the potential of displacing at a minimum 13 million people. Now, to give you some context in terms of when we talk about growing sea levels, some of the things that people are probably not aware of, but there was an island in Louisiana called the Isle of John. Uh, it's in Louisiana. And as a matter of fact, currently there's only 20 families left there. And the reason why other families played is because the island is literally sinking because of the sea, rising sea levels. And certainly when we talk about in terms of the frosting of the Arctic, then we talk about quillets that, that, that also increases the level of, of the sea, which affects the current, uh, which affects the temperature, the temperature, uh, particularly with the jet stream. So we have a situation where clearly uh, the global warming is having a devastating impact, impact. And one of the things that back in the 80s, you know, James Hansen talked about global warming. And this man, you know, worked with NASA, and he was, uh, and he was vilified for the, for the standard he took. But today, this article talks about the fact that we're talking about over 300 authors, in particular scientists, uh, in 2015, who actually talked about the, the, the significance in terms of global warming and the legitimate threat it poses to human beings. And so it seems to me that unless we get about the business in terms of innovative new technologies to combat global warming, 
And one thing is sure that we're going to pay the price for that. And I think one of the things that, you know, because people like to eat, I think one of the things I, I want to point out, and the, 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 the article briefly mentioned that, alluded to it, was that when you talk about the food supplies, when you talk about in, increased famine, when you teach increased global, you know, uh, temperature, global temperatures, you talk about the uh, depletion of, you know, of, of, of underground waters, uh, it, it creates a real problem, particularly with respect that you need water in terms of, you know, um, you know for, your, for your plant, for your farms, uh, for people to consume. Uh, so as water levels actually deplete and increase the population increases, then there's a higher call, higher demand for water, which means that global warming creates a scenario in which conceivably a lot of people, and this is a, a recent article that was recently released as, as two months ago, talked about in five years a lot of people won't have access to water. Uh, not only because we talk about the lack of availability in terms of water as, you know, water tables continue to drop, but we talk about rising prices reflect that you know, the water tables are dropping. So clearly it's, 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 we're at a critical stage in terms of global warming, but it, unless people take a real stand and do some real soul-searching in terms of, re- I mean, a real stand, I'm talking about confronting these corporations, confronting this government, uh, demanding the adequate change and do what it has to do in terms of making sure that change happens, you know, I think that we're all going to be potential victims, you know, uh, and we, particularly when we talk about mass migration as people move from areas in which, you know, the, 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 the local economy has been devastated by global warming who move elsewhere in, a, in an attempt to start all over again. So clearly it's problematic on, on many, many levels. You know, Brother Anthony, um, I would like to get your take on what may have been the motive behind releasing this report two weeks earlier and release it on the day when they knew very little people would be paying attention to it because everybody's caught up in consumerism, going out buying food, buying things, while at the same time they can be easily distracted from such an important report, particular report that talks about how this um, global warming, warming can have an impact on the ecosystems, have impact come on have impact on maybe possibly even more than twenty six thousand more people but end up being committing suicide by year twenty fifteen as a result of it. Um and we also know that US still doing nuclear testing. But in terms of the timing of putting it at a at a time where at least people will be more conscious of it, what is the motivation behind that and the rationale for that from your perspective, Brother Anthony? Oh, from my perspective uh, this is such a serious problem. I think it's an effort to downplay the seriousness of the issue. And uh, let's see, and uh, that's why it was published, I think, on a day when people tend to pay the least attention to the U, to the news. In the U.S., that is, I should say, because uh, this Black Friday hype is a U.S. phenomenon. And it was created uh, so that uh, so so that the capitalists can make more money, but particularly the ones that dominate the retail industry. Uh, but this is a very serious problem, and actually, it could have an 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 impact on on a lot of people's lifestyles uh, inside the U.S. Uh, internationally. 
I think uh, the 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 burden of climate change is going to be borne by the poor and oppressed nations of the world, particularly in Africa and Central and South America, because the poor ha- do not have the means to make uh, quick adaptations or simply put uh, up and relocate the way people with greater access to wealth do. And so this is a problem that needs to be taken very seriously. And, uh, and um, you know, in order for this not to get the attention that it deserves, is buried uh, on the events of uh, so-called Black Friday. And I think it was a political motive behind that. Because if people understood how serious this problem really is, I think people would be up in arms. Because uh, you're talking about the water supply and ultimately affecting the food supply also. So uh, you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, prices of uh, uh, basic, basic goods and services going up because of shortages and also shortages, uh, so you know you have greater chance of heart, of uh, hunger and starvation occurring. You know, brother Zabari, with this global warming, we're talking about the impact of the coastal water rising higher, more flood on the east coast. We're talking about how it's beginning to affect the harvest of food. We're talking about more more. Harsher levels like hurricanes and fires that you're seeing now increasing. We talk about all these things, but yet it seems not to get the attention that it deserves. What do you think we can do as as as, as a conscious citizens to do to make our other peers realize more attention needs to be paid to it, and we need to change our way of living? It's essential that we um, are constantly attending meetings by those advocacy groups that talk about these issues. We also need to stay in contact and uh, put pressure and let them know not only do we have concerns, but we have certain demands of them, too, in regards to politicians and also those persons in charge of regulating utilities. Because the thing we don't want to estimate is that as you look at these kind of conditions happening, you also have to look at it, um, the impact in terms of utilities or those things that will be impacted in terms of wildfires. You may see some things fluctuate because you would think after a while, for an example, in regards to power companies, if they realize they will lose power due to these, um, the number of their customers being devastated by these um, incidents, makes you wonder are they going to raise the rates to make up for that revenue they lost because we know this is a day and age where since you don't have real regulation, they are free to um, do as the so-called market indicates. So you got to understand that in terms of that, we have to think that it's not just going to be solely a matter of property, but also it's going to be other avenues as well because at the end of the day, the name of the game is money. And even when you look at the repair efforts, we've often seen, using Katrina as an example, there are people like um, Dick Cheney, Halliburton, excuse me, that will seek to make big profit off of the fact of what was created. So you got to understand that until it really 
hits the 1%, it's not going to be a major issue. Because it's not so much the fact that people don't see it happening, it's who it's impacting mostly. Thank you, Brother Jabari. You know, Brother Zaki. Yes, go ahead. Let me just ask you. Let me add some subtext to what uh, Jabbar is saying, and this is important. We, we talk about the ignorance as related to global warming. It's not necessarily always the truth. Recently, um, New York City Mayor de Blasio brought out a suit against oil and gas. He specifically named Exxon, Chevron, BP, Shell, and Congo Phillips as being complicitous in global warming. Now, he talked about the fact that, given the fact it's going to cost New York at least $20 billion you know, to build levees, uh, for the sea rise, uh, to waterproof the buildings from global warming, that he felt that these oil and gas conglomerates should share any cost of helping make sure that those things those things get done. But interestingly enough, the judge who heard the case, U.S. District Judge John Keenan, he agreed gas and oil is responsible for global warming. That is quite interesting. Then he went on to talk about the fact that they spend billions of dollars to consider the truth about global warming. And he also mentioned that, that these, these oil and gas companies routinely lie about the impact of global warming. But despite oil and gas culpability uh, as related to global warming, his position is that the courts have no, no, no standing in terms of uh, making a ruling as, as such because to do so would be creating a model for corporations to abide by. And he don't feel the courts, the courts have that kind of power. Now, if the courts don't have the power in terms of um, – Regulating behavior, criminal behavior of corporations, then what he's saying is that uh, destruction of human life is inconsequential. And so, therefore, when, when Jabari says it comes down to dollars and cents, he's absolutely correct. But not only does it come down to dollars and cents, but this kind of uh, nihilism, this kind of wholesale desire to see destruction, is something that's pretty hard to fathom. But nonetheless, when you start saying that you, you, you're intimately aware that corporations contribute to global warming, that they're responsible for global warming, and that they routinely game the system to ensure to get the, to have their way. Then if you say they do all these things, but you're still saying that somehow they're not culpable, there's a real disconnect in terms of that, and that's very, very scary. So I think only a capitalist mindset could come up with such a disconnect, on one hand saying that, yes, you're guilty of contributing or responsible for being the catalyst for global warming, but on the other hand, uh, you did nothing wrong. It's absurd. But nonetheless, it does. It's sort of in terms of this whole, uh, uh, this whole, this whole nonsense around, you know, uh, money being the end all to everything. So I think it's very, very scary. You know, panelists and I like Sister Hattie and Brother Moses. I'd like to get your thought on this issue. When I read this article, one of the things that came to my mind is that really the Western nation, nations and the capitalist systems. They are at war, or is seen to be at war with nature. What do y'all make of What do y'all make of that particular um, assessment? Are they at war with well, nature? That's what it seemed like to me. Which What y'all took from this paper? I think that could be an accurate uh, statement, considering what they're doing and how they're responding to uh, very serious situations around climate change and the lack of their willingness to try to make um, some type of um, movement to help with getting, with getting worse and worse and worse. 
And, I, you know, frankly speaking, I also think that these people figure, well, by 2050, I'll be dead anyway, so it won't make any difference to me. And this is how some people think. They live for now. They don't really care about even their own children or grandchildren and the world that they leave behind. They live for now. That means, you know, they're just that self-centered and that um, selfish and bodacious about their ego that nobody makes really any difference or have any care for anyone else. So it's it's always about just them. And I really think that's the way most of these people think. It's just about them. And who cares what kind of future and world we leave to the next person? As long as I'm doing what I want to do and getting what and getting and having the kind of power that I want right now. It's just like a little baby, a very immature mind that has has nothing to think about, a two or three year old mindset of what they want. Because they're not thinking about making the world any better, period. I certainly agree with you, Sister Annie. I certainly fit in the mode of the whole concept of uh, self-gratification and individualism. Brother Moses, what you took from this article? What you think? Yeah, I think, you know, Sister Annie has a point. Uh, I think, you know, we we are, we are just uh, collateral damage, so to speak, to these people who are, who are trying to make as much money as possible and uh, sacrificing the economy, the global warming, etc. all that just just uh, is of no significance to them because they're in a money-driven case. And, you know, and, uh, I mean, uh, another example of this collateral damage mentality is, is um, this, the news reporter from, that was killed in, in in uh in Saudi Arabia uh uh, uh well uh, yes and uh Trump writes him off as basically you know he's not worth the money basically that's what he's saying is, you know it's too much money involved you know it's like the old too big to fail argument or whatever um we we got to we got to think about the money and uh and how much money is being invested, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, life is life is just it's only worth so much. Uh, what the how much is worth? Is, I don't know what the what the bottom line is, but obviously it's, it's got some kind of price on it. On it. Um, interesting. This uh, this article, uh, National Crime and Assessment, uh, is, is must be um, published every. Four years, uh, and so that's why this this study on on the climate was done, uh, and the report, you know, um, describes each region of the country, and you know, they're saying like there's going to be fires in, in the southeast, uh, like um, like those in California, which will bring smog, etc., to Atlanta. Uh, that we talked this morning, and in New England and uh, and the Mid Atlantic, it says uh, ocean front barrier, clouds could erode and narrow, and the Midwest is 
forecast plaguing yields, plunging yields of corn, soybeans, wheat, and rice. So it has a devastating effect. It affects the economy across the board. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, Trump is denying that there is such thing as global warming because he's, it's, you know, it's, it's about he's got money. He just sees dollar signs and the, and the ability to make money using coal or doing whatever. And, uh, and he's, not, he's not interested in, in humanity itself. Thank you. But, you know, Thank Brother you. Africa, this, this question in terms of this war against nature is a very interesting question that you raise. Uh, one of the things, of course, we realize the oil and gas industries play a big part in terms of funding, uh, you know, you know global warming denial. Uh, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year on that. So the mere fact that they spend such a lot of large expenditures, no, they know that in fact this question of global warming is, is not a fluke. They understand the realism of global warming. Now, one of the things when we talk about expenditures, and the Koch brothers spend over $88 million minimum a year on on fighting uh, global on fighting um, global warming, uh, setting up or reinforcing global warming denial. Uh, the Mercer Family Foundation spends over $3.4 million uh, between 20, 2003 and 2010 just to ensure that denial is, is, is the name of the game. Uh, one of the things that when we talk about in terms of disseminating false information, we keep, we've got to keep in mind that these, 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 these wealthy individuals, these corporations, uh, not only create narratives in terms of which they know is false, but they didn't have a body of people, a body of individual uh, organizations that actually disseminate this information so it confuses people in terms of the reality of global warming. So we talk about people who receive expenditures for the sole purpose of global warming denial. We talk about places like the Competitive Enterprise Institute, Heritage Foundation, Cato Institute, American, American Prosperity, American Legislative Executive Committee, or known as ALEC. Uh, and also across the, across the pond, uh, they got organizations like the Small UK, the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which created propaganda in the UK, the sole purpose of people being confused around the question of global warming. So this notion that, in fact, that they don't know that global warming is real is maybe a bit of a, a, a bit disingenuous. They understand global warming is real, is real but as Sister Hattie says, they're not concerned about it because, because by 2040, 2050, they'll be long gone, and so therefore they don't care about the impacts of, of global warming. Yeah, Brother Hackey, you sort of um, on the other road I was going to ask the panelists to respond to, and that was the question of, I think the everyday brothers and sisters got to realize that this issue also an issue that important to them, because as Brother Malcolm stated, that whatever these people do, they would do things that also help destroy you, that destroy nature and take you down with it. So how do we get the masses to join this fight? Because I'm not even quite sure when we look at these reports how accurate the reports are in terms of its true severity. Um, I believe that may be worse than what they even indicate. But how do we make sure that what does exist and really exist, how can we ensure of what is going on without relying on their figures, their data, and their methodology of researching. What can we do? Uh, I think we can network, uh, share this information with our network at a minimum. And through that, 
you know, broaden our outreach. Again, I think uh, organization is key in this case. We got to exert greater pressure on our political leadership, but that can only be done through organization. And uh, this, um, and, uh, and uh, you know, it's past time. I mean, this problem's been studied for over 30 years. As a matter of fact, uh, um, one of the multinational corporations, Exxon Mobil, had commissioned a study and later, and when they, and when the scientists came up with a conclusion that they didn't like, they tried to suppress it by spreading confusion. So, uh, you know, we have to take this problem seriously. It has international uh, implications because um, pollution does not respect political boundaries. Never has. So uh, so this uh, this is going to take people, tr- uh, you know, pulling together, and uh, especially us. Because whatever comes down the pike, uh, you know, uh, the African population is going to bear the brunt of it. Yeah, you know, one thing, one thing, brother, you know, brother, brother Africa, you know, one thing, we definitely, we definitely need organization. But in addition to the organization, I think we have to do a better job in trying to get information out that's counter to the official narrative that says that global warming doesn't exist. Uh, one of the things, you know, thinking back in terms of the Paris Agreement, uh, in which over 200 nations were committed to the goal of containing global warming below 2 degrees Celsius or, 30, or 35.6 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, realized that once it be, goes beyond 2 degrees Celsius, then you're, you're at a tipping point. There's not much you can do in terms of reversing global warming. And you're absolutely correct. One thing that scientists are very, very clear on, uh, a lot of times, for instance, if you talk about the melting of the Arctic, you don't know at what rate, uh, you know, it, 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 it melts consistently. Uh, it, may, it may melt some days faster than other days, and so computing that is becoming problematic. But unless they understand that the, the, the potential in terms of, you know, the, the impact in terms of the, those, 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 those ice structures melting, it's enormous. And so, therefore, they do understand that they give a, they give a, uh, they give a statistic but they understand that it's very possible that it can be even worse than what they're predicting. But in terms of chess, in terms of information for the masses, of, for the masses of folks, I think we have to begin to understand that when we talk about alternatives to the current uh, to the current system, some of the things that we can do in terms of fighting global warming include reducing industrial emissions, or we can eliminate fossil fuels for energy. Um, we can use alternative energy, uh, in, for instance, wind, solar, or hydro energy. Uh, we could plant tree, more trees to absorb the carbon dioxide. We could even plant, we could even see clouds with silver iodine, you know, in terms of making them brighter to reflect more of the sun's heat. So things we can do in terms of combating global warming, but nonetheless, uh, a lot of these things that have to take place, you know, in terms of sanction under the government, under also of the government, because the government is the only one that has the true power in terms of regulating industry and making sure that they abide by the rules. But it's going to take mass organization and a lot of pressure and doing things we're not ordinarily comfortable with in terms of getting these people to back up. Because they're not going to back up. Because their thing is that, they know, one, they don't care. And second, there's money to be made, and that's all they're, they're focused on. And so, therefore, without some serious organization, there's no way conceivable that this thing, they're going to stop doing what they're doing. And that's just a sad reality. 
All right, panel, this is what we're going to do right now. We're going to pause on the calls. We're going to come back. We're going to uh, discuss what's happening in Africa. I'd like to get y'all ready for having this really interesting discussion on Africa's desperate youth uh, getting high on opioids and anything they can get their hands on. So that story is from you. How could that happen in Africa? We'll be right back to discuss this. This is Africa on the Moon. Ideas. 
If you are interested in being on this program, you have something to say, you'd like to talk about what's going on in your world, in your community, and what's going on in your country, please email us and we'd love to have you. You can do that again by emailing AfricaOnTheMove2 at Gmail. And we thank you. So let's continue the discussion. I think United is what's happening in Africa. You know, when I read this article that came out of Africa, which was dated on May the 9th, 2018, titled Africa's Desperate Youth Are Getting High on Opioids and Anything They Can Get Their Hands On. It made me often think about a quote to Kwame Ture, often you would say that we got to be very careful or allow the particular history of you to become the general history of the world. Now, I'm saying that in the context of um, when we talk about this opioid war, this opioid uh, epidemic that's going on in America, uh, the story seems to have a similar reflection in Africa. And I'm saying why now Africa is looking like America. And one of the things that I recognize in terms of the history of connected dots is that as we are interested here, Africa and Africa and done every nation on the continent, 53 nations on the continent, and we know wherever the military go, so does the drugs. Could this open war be a manifestation of the participation and coordination of the U.S. military in Africa? So, panelists, that's my general question as it relates to this article. And I think it's very interesting because one of the things people have to keep in mind about the potential of Africa and the future of Africa is is this, this, this particular data, which they stated that 60% of the population in Africa, their youth is under the age of 25. 60% of the population of Africa's youth is under the age of 25. And that says a whole lot. And right now, what we are talking about, talking about all of a sudden now, drugs have become a major issue among the youth in Africa. So, Brother Anthony, neither all. Could it just be a pattern or reflection of reality? Because then you got a correspondent of U.S. military all over Africa, and we know wherever the military goes, so also goes the distribution of drugs. I think that's a part of it. I don't think that's the whole story. I think uh, also um, one of the features of capitalism is that it that it brings human misery, and. Uh, why this is kept, there's been an opioid problem in the African community for decades in, in in the diaspora, except that it wasn't called an opioid problem. It was called drug abuse. It was not, uh, it was uh, it was considered a crime issue, not a health care issue. And uh, that had been going on in our community. For several decades, at least going back uh, to the uh, to the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War, and uh, and and you and typically, it was the military that uh, uh, it was through the military that drugs were flooded into the African community, uh, you know, to undermine the militancy of the African youth of that time. And it seems like there might be a similar phenomenon going on here, compounded by 
uh, you know, the uh, the misery of being unemployed and uh, and not being able, not having the means to adequately care for your family. And uh, so I, I I would say it's a combination of things. But I but I would think the heavy uh, imperialist presence on the ground in Africa is a major is a component of it, and also uh, and also seems like uh, some of the pharmaceutical companies are, uh, are 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 making money by by, by making uh, <clears throat> things like codeine and some of these other uh, other pharmaceuticals available in the African market. Well, Haki, as you connect, connect your dots, what do you think may have led to this so-called open world um, phenomenon in Africa as it relates to our youth at this particular time? Yeah, well, I, I thought your your observation was ingenious, Brother Africa. Uh, you know, one of the things when they talk about uh, opiates, they're, they're essentially they're not talking about cocaine or heroin. They're talking about tramadol or hypnol and marijuana. It's very interesting because recently when I was in, in um, Senegal, one of the things, one of the big problems in Senegal was was heroin. And it's very very interesting. Uh, you know, and one of the points you made earlier when you talked about the fact. And where the U.S. military goes, so flows the drugs. It's very interesting. The U.S. military goes to Afghanistan. For the longest time, heroin wasn't an issue. Now, all of a sudden, heroin is an issue. Now, now where does the heroin come from? It comes from, what, the, the poppy fields, Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, and places like that. So clearly there is there's a connection. And there's a book um, written a long time ago by a um, former FBI agent. Uh, I can't remember his name right of the hand. Um, but he's not Tommy A.G., but uh, I forgot his name. He's on the tip of my tongue to come to me as I talk. But anyway, he talked about the fact in terms of the connection between the military and the flow of, of, of narcotics. Uh, so the mere fact that they headlined this as, uh, you know, opiates as being problematic in Africa, but didn't mention heroin, for me, raises a red flag. And that is that uh, one of the things is well known in terms of connection between the CAE and, and Nigerian the, um, 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 leadership. Uh, it's well known in terms of that connection in terms of, you know, disseminating, you know, uh, heroin and cocaine, you know, throughout the African continent. But nonetheless, this article doesn't touch that. So it's, it seeks to create this parallel between what's happening in America and what's happening in, in Africa by simply saying that opiates is a problem both in America and both in Africa. So I think it seeks to, seeks to not provide real information in terms of what's really going on, and to simply placate people into the extent that they start believing that it's just natural for people to have problems with opiates and that it's just a natural occurrence. So I think the obstacle that there's a political component in terms of this piece. And when I read it, I was like, this is very, very interesting that there's no mention in terms of the Nigerian connection in terms of the drug trade throughout Africa. There's no reference to the CIA in terms of its historical connection to the narcotic genome from throughout Africa. So I thought it was very interesting and simply white. To me, this article simply whitewashed the reality in terms of what's really going on, and I think it's a very good, good propaganda piece. But that's that's my view. You know, Sister Hattie, when we look at you having a negative population growth among themselves on the continent of Europe, and they talk about how Africa, I think in the year 2050, is going to have the greatest population growth 
among, you know, all of the continents. Again, I ask myself, is this overall phenomenon in Africa now is just another act of war against African people? What do you take from this article, Sister Hattie? Ding, 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 ding. The first thing you said was accurate, and now the second thing you said is is accurate. Oh, for sure, for sure. What did Maxine Waters say about the uh, crack cocaine in our neighborhood, you know? Back in, when was that? 2000? 90s, I think. Late 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, same thing. Look, they got the same, these people do the same thing wherever they are all over the world. Now, how many African countries are producing pharmaceuticals at the rate this country is? How, how, are they producing any pharmaceuticals, period, would be my question. That's that's number two. And then number three, you take a look at it in the article, and they're talking about uh, the the rate of uh, young people there. To be honest with you, I don't I don't think at all for one second they could even begin to talk about or count the number of people in Africa accurately. I think it's propaganda. I don't believe it. I don't believe anything these people say. It is to set a stage and a tone for doing something very disastrous further to the war on the African people. African Americans that are here It's just the next step Next stage To destroy So um, Same game being played as usual Same strategy They don't have too much To go with But still like Maya Angelou says And still we rise Whatever they do And still we rise and the baby kids say they don't die, they just multiply. So, Brother Moses, uh had a really interesting um, issue in terms of maybe the presentation of the real reality of what's going on in Africa. And I'm saying that in the context of how this article sort of indicates that when they describe African youth, their only motivation is mainly just to find some kind of way to be high. Um that's their coping mechanism for their oppression. Well, we know scientifically speaking that wherever there's oppression, there are always going to be some form of resistance. What did you take from this article, uh, Brother Moses? Yeah, but the, your correlation of the correlation of the troops in Africa and in Africa and the, the drugs in Africa are definitely correlated. Um, I think, you know, the capitalism, as Brother uh, Anthony said, you know, capitalism alienates people and and uh, creates a despair and, and wherever it goes. And so, so, you know, we know that that's the soil by which, you know, the alienation and the degradation uh, uh, is the soil by which these drugs are able to be in, introduced in the final audience. Uh, uh, the fact that there are so many young people, you know, the unemployment rate has got to be high. Uh, the situation is, is, is desperate. And so, 
you know, we understand we understand that that's, that's fertile soil for drugs. And uh I I would think that uh the 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 resistance the people who are struggling and resisting are trying to educate people and help them see what's really going on and see that drugs are not the answer and that that it's only a form of escapism that that's very temporary and uh and that you know the struggle itself is 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 what what the solution is and uh hopefully they will people will be organizing to to get into the struggle. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Rose. Brother Jabari, I'd like to have you take on this article. Before you have this take, again, let me just point out some a real important demogra- uh, demographic fact that may lead to lies to the issue of why drugs not only been pumped in Africa but throughout uh, throughout the world when you're talking about um, this whole worldwide drug um, issue. It talks about countries with the youngest populations that's under 25. And it states that 60% of all of the African population uh, is under the age of 25. It has 42% for Latin America and the Caribbean. It has 40% for Asia. Then it has 38% for Oceanus. And then it has North America with 32% and Europe 27%. They have the least uh, amount of people, 25 population-wise. Looking at that demographic, that demographic um, fact, Brother Zabari, what do you take from it? And what are your thoughts on this particular article? Can you repeat the question one more time, please? Well, in general, just give me your thought on this article and what you think about this, the, the demographics showing that Africa, Latin America, they have a high rate of the young population versus Europe, America, has a population that's a lot more older. What do you take from that? Or what can you conclude from that? What you can conclude is that at some point, what um, our dear sister um, Frances Cress Weldon said is going to come to light because of their inferior genetics. Remember, she has been lecturing on this for years. That because of their inferior genetics, it was going to come a time where they reached the epitome of desperation, and that's what we're witnessing because we always know that a lot of times those that are going to become the best and brightest and start from their aspirations while they're young. So if you take off a people's young population, you sign me in the present, the future, present, and the future. So by them deliberately targeting these particular demographics, that's what they know. They're afraid of what the potential could be, given what they're, do, what they're able to do in the midst of the circumstance they find themselves in, unfortunately. Because they're bombarded with a number of hostilities yet, they exhibit greatness that the whole world recognizes. Okay. Point well made. Can I add something to that? Yes, Anthony. Yeah, a couple of things. One, uh, this article doesn't mention the impact, uh, you know, of uh, uh, of the media, which may not be as strong as it is inside the U.S., and also, this isn't the first time in history where African youth have been targeted. During the Maafa, 
or when or, or or the trafficking of Africans. A overwhelming majority of the Africans that were uprooted from the continent were the youth. Were the youth between uh, 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 in that age range between uh, about fifteen and thirty years old, I think, somewhere in that range. So uh, you know, this is an, uh, uh, another form of warfare against our people, and uh, it's being waged uh, with drug tra- with drug trafficking, just as the attack against uh, African youth in the diaspora took place, and it's continuing. Okay, panelists, we are coming to the end of time for this program. I was like. I will ask each one of you to give a final summation or final thought, one minute less, for tonight's program. Let's start it off with you, Brother Moses. Your final thoughts for tonight. Well, we know that uh, the Orange Menace has no no regard for human life, and so we cannot expect them to embrace climate change. We cannot expect them to have any any sympathy or uh, empathy for African youth and the opioid epidemic or whatever is going on in Africa and, and throughout the world. And so, you know, we have to organize. We have to have an independent voice. We have to put out our own uh, information about what's going on. Uh, Hopefully we can. Thank you. We thank you for your contribution to today's program, Brother Moses. Thanks, Brother Zubari, your final thoughts for tonight. It's important that we are diligent and engaging in holistic research because when it comes to those who are not in the 1%, you're being attacked at every angle, period. And this is systemic. It's not by accident. And we have to be aware of what we're witnessing is all part of one ongoing trend. They're not blips. I mean, this isn't a time to um, be naive and fall asleep. Thank you, Brother Zimbabwe. Well said. Next, Sister Harry, your final thoughts for the night. Well, I guess I would say we have to educate, educate, educate to liberate. Well, so see, thank you, Sister Sandy. Brother Haki, your final thoughts for tonight. Yeah, it seems to me, you know, this 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 this, this war of destruction, destruction against of humans, destruction of animal life, destruction of the planet, it has to cease. But first and foremost we get to understand that this kind of mindset is a quintessential threat to everything we hold dear and begin to see it for what it is and stop uh, acquiescing to this kind of insanity. And and also I would like to add that, you know, it's always I would encourage people, you know, to spend their time to unravel the matrix. And you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Ampton, do you have final thoughts for tonight? Yes. My final thought for tonight is that we need to organize because we're, 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 we're at war uh, over control of our labor and land. And uh, we need political education and permanent organization today more than ever. So please, Africans, get organized. And this is our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org. 
for more information about our party. Thanks. Thank you, Brother Anthony, and to our listening audience, like always, we'd like to thank you for your support. We'd like to thank you for allowing us to come to your homes today where we can speak truth to power. And we'd like to, again, to remind you that our organization there cannot be no unity. We need organization. We're organization we will get to unity. Let's unite and fight the power. We'll leave you tonight with Mama Africa, and then following by some lessons from history from Brother Kwame Ture. We thank you. We'll see you next week. Next week, let's grab to go forward, Apple, and backwards now. Peace out. This is Brother Africa on Africa on the Moon. Thank you for your welcome. We have been allotted uh, half an hour, and uh, within this half an hour, we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s and uh, its relationships of the 80s and relevance to the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I, I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60 and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, Within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. 
Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott, came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. Thus, if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are, served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. 
Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> and one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who, once having made gains, are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials 
and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. That was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in the society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected the society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students is clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers, and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. 
It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. <clears throat> uh, thus, students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood and the students going to spot these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area and as a mobilized area there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the, power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. 
And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know, as Africans, we just love anything, anybody. we just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populist. We did work for the populist. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interest. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interest of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interest as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Nick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans, assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests 
are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there, with one fighting against the other, simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. <laughs> he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind, even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness, if you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. 
today the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus they themselves have come to demonstrate the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is of course the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself, but people, however, can repeat their mistakes. Yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question, and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have changed and will have changed by any means necessary. The final point then. The final point then. You must not become confused by the American capitalist system which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> of course. You volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? But if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America, they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. 
For the African masses everywhere, the clear poise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we who knowing that the people will always be free, we understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor. We're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you.